At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Kim Wunschmann, a member of the Center for German-Jewish Studies at the University of Sussex, here to talk about her new book, Before Auschwitz, Jewish Prisoners in the Pre-War Concentration Camps, published this year by... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Kim Wunschmann, a member of the Center for German-Jewish Studies at the University of Sussex, here to talk about her new book, Before Auschwitz, Jewish Prisoners in the Pre-War Concentration Camps, published this year by Harvard University Press. Kim, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's really a pleasure to talk to you and to your audience. Well, it's great to have you. So, Kim, this book is about the pre-war concentration camps. Uh, What years are we talking about? And what are the important historical turning points over the course of your narrative? I think that there are three sort of broad phases. Is that right? That's correct, Jason. Well, um, the book covers the pre-war years in the history of Nazi Germany. And I look broadly at three phases, as you said. The first one is the phase 1933 to 1934. Um, The second one is the phase roughly 1935 to 1937. And the last one is the phase 1938 to 1939. And so tell us a little bit about the pre-war concentration camps. Um, how were they similar and how were they different from the wartime camps? Yes, well, they are very um, different from the usual image that we have in mind when we think about the concentration camps. Very different from your barrack uh, classical structure of the camp. They were rather improvised sites. Um, found in all sorts of pre-existing structures, like um, you'd have, for example, um, disused factories, old breweries, hotels, private apartments, um, castles. There was even a ship that was turned into a concentration camp, so very much um, not purpose-built for being concentration camp, but found within existing um, buildings. Improvisation and the lack coordination was very much the key feature of those uh, pre-war concentration camps. There wasn't much coordination from the regime. It was in the main local actors um, that empowered themselves and that made up the rules as they go. And the change only comes um, at the end of this first phase, 1934, when the SS gradually um, takes over the, these um, various sites 
and turns them into what we think or what we call the system of the concentration camp. So this um, first one and a half years, if you want, between Hitler's assumption of power and the summer of 1934 is a very um, uncoordinated phase in the history of the camps. It's only then, in the second half of 1934, that the SS takes over and forms the camps into a system that we then um, have in mind also when we think about the wartime camps. And of course, Auschwitz as the most um, widely known of those concentration camps, which was uh, set up only in March, um, no, in May, sorry, in May 1940. Right. And the individual who's sort of responsible in 1934 for systematizing these camps is who? Um, as I said, there was no system in 1933 uh, 34, so it's uh, local authorities. This could be um, a local SA leader. Um, this could be also uh, the mayor of a town, um, a Gauleiter, um, a police chief, so all sorts of local actors who take the initiative and go forward um, without national coordination, setting up these um, very varied places. Right. So there's a lot of improvisation going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we know about the living conditions of the camps and who was sent there? Um, yes, it's interesting. If you think about um, the first association that we have about those early concentration camps, it would mostly be um, political prisoners, right? Because the first uh, campaign of terror of the regime was directed in um, in the direction of the labor movement and the organized working class, crushing them as a political opposition. So mostly when uh, people try to think about Jews in the early concentration camp, they would come up uh, with the uh, notion that these were probably communists, socialists, social democrats, uh, political activists, which is, which is true. Um, but we'll also find, um, and this is maybe uh, surprising, a large number of Jews who were um, interned for what I'd call um, non-political reason. And this could be Ordinary people, um, for example, merchants, uh, businessmen, cattle dealers, um, people accused for having um, friendly or sexual relations with non-Jewish partners, the so-called race defilement accused. So it's a very, very broad variety um, of Jewish prisoners. But what is clear is that Jews became prisoners of the camps like from the very first month on, from um, March 1933, when we see the first camps being set up. Jews are found among the prisoners and they are arrested for uh, various reasons, which we normally wouldn't think because we kind of like go in the trap um, of the regime, um, who for propaganda purposes said that these Jews were um, Marxist insurgents um, or um, communist subversives, right, who plotted to overthrow the state. It's only when we drill down really case study by case study to the reasons of why Jews were arrested um, that we see the the broad variety of of rationales and reasons behind their arrest and imprisonment. Right. So the the Jews in the camps actually were a very diverse group. Um, What kind of numbers are we talking? And um, you know, what did the regi- the Nazi regime, how did they deal with the question of who is a Jew? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. Well, first of all, uh, the numbers, again, if we uh, stay in that first phase of the early concentration camps um, in general, 
are very high. Um, we think about 150, maybe even 200,000 people being um, interned in 1933 um, alone, so a very, very high number. Um, now, we don't have concrete figures of how many of these uh, were Jews, but my estimate um, that I'll um, come to in the book is um, that about 5%, um, so around 10,000 um, people, um, were of Jewish roots and Jewish um, background. Rem right. and, go ahead. I remind you of the second part of your question. Um, defining who oh, is yeah. a Jew. Defining um, who is a Jew. Well, um, I should say that in the book, um, I had to make this decision. Um, so if I look at the persecuted themselves, um, there were a number among them who wouldn't necessarily define themselves to be uh, Jews. Um, and clearly by, um, if we go by halakha, by Jewish religious law, um, also some of them would probably not be counted in within this group. So I had a dilemma of who were actually the subject of my study. Um, and in the end, I decided um, for going for um, all those people who were persecuted as Jews. So it's not necessarily their own self-definition, but the regime deciding um, on them being Jews and persecuted as Jews. And this has to do, um, as you know, of course, with the Nuremberg racial laws, with the Nazi de definition of who is a Jew. Um, but there is, um, there is a difference between self-determination and enemy perception um, of the regime. Mm -hmm. What kind of media coverage did the pre-war camps uh, receive? Oh, they were very um, public, um, very much in the media. Um, lots of uh, press reports. Um, there was even a radio program on the uh, concentration camp of Oranienburg, close to Berlin. So the regime had a very... Um, vital interest in making the camps public um, as a means of deterrent, of course, first of all. Um, the image that the regime sent about the camps was one of an institution of betterment or so-called re-education institutions. So these were places for um, German national comrades who went astray or who kind of like needed um, an education to be let back into um, the German so-called people's community, which was the um, utopia social um, community of, uh, that the Nazis envisioned. So the image of the camp was, first of all, um, very public through reports um, by the regime, but it was also um, the talk of town, mostly. I mean, people were very much, we know that, um, talking about the camps also um, those people who returned from the camps, the released prisoners, um, shared their experiences. Um, so it was very much within the, the public knowledge um, of German people. Right. One of the things that I think you really want to try to um, get people to think about in the book is that this is not a linear process. We go mm. from the pre-war camps and it, it uh, goes right into the wartime camps as if, you know, it was preordained. Mm -hmm. um, so in what ways was were the, were the pre-war camps a transition phase? Yes. Um, again, this was one of the decisions that I had uh, to make for my narrative. Like, do I look at the pre-war camps, as most people have done, from the perspective of the wartime catastrophe, which then um, oftentimes leads historians to think, 
that these places um, or this phase in the concentration camp history was just an antecedent, just a prelude um, to the later catastrophe. Um, and I quickly found out that I had to go for other questions if I didn't want to fall into that trap. Um, so my uh, question really is, what was the role that the concentration camps played within this process of exclusion of Jews from German state and society during the years 1933 to 1939? Um, how were these new sites of terror um, used also as as instruments of, of kind of violent uh, social engineering, if you want, to forcefully sort all those um, called community aliens from um, those who were considered to be valuable national comrades. Um, and for the Jews in Germany, um, how much were the camps instruments of terror, really, um, to pressure Jews into emigration? So before... Um, a Nazi anti-Jewish policy switched from expulsion to um, extermination, of course, uh, the camps played a different role. They were um, used to speed up the forced immigration from um, Germany. So really, we see that starting already in 1935, a policy evolves that uses a camp to um, forcefully remove Jews from the Nazi people's community. Um, gradually, Emigration became the only valid condition for release. Um, the only ways for Jews out of the concentration camp led into exile. You could be only released if you'd have your emigration papers uh, ready. So really, I think um, exploring the camp um, within that process of exclusion, within that process of forcing Jews to leave Germany um, was, was the main rationale of the book. Right. And you sort of put yourself in the shoes of some of the Jewish prisoners, right? Mm. Because they couldn't they couldn't predict what was going to happen in 1940. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I have this one sentence where I say that basically um, the final solution of the Holocaust was unthinkable in the 1930s. Um, so I have um, one of my protagonists, Ludwig Bendix, is a lawyer from uh, Berlin, and he is actually twice interned in the pre-war concentration camp. He is interned in the early camps, I think from summer 1933 um, to, to winter 1933, and then again um, from 1935 to 1937. Um, so clearly he is also an example to investigate um, Jewish reactions or Jewish resistance through this new instrument of terror because he's very much, um, well, he considers himself to be a German, right? Um, and he is not intimidated by the terror of the camps, um, doesn't want to leave. And it's only then in 1937, uh, when the Nazis make it, the condition for him to be freed from Dachau, that he very, very unwillingly um, leaves Germany and goes um, to Palestine. But um, still in that very last days, he's preparing um, a legal suit against uh, the commandant um, of, of Dachau. Um, so still uh, the leaving in um, the function of law um, and only his, his kids have to send guard over him and make sure that he never sends off uh, this legal suit. So yeah, I put myself um, in, in the perspective um, of the persecutor to explain um, to the reader really what, what kind of a scandal um, these camps were and um, also how hard the Nazis had to try um, 
first of all, to turn this very diverse minority group of German Jews into a homogenous group of enemies. And um, secondly, what, what kind of resistance they also encountered from the persecuted. Why have the pre-war camps um, receded from history and memory? Yeah, well, I think um, it's not so surprising if we think about um, the sheer scale and the systematic organization um, of the final solution and, and of the wartime um, destruction. I mean, these staggering uh, numbers, this um, unbelievable dimension of the genocide um, draws the attention and it, and it, drew the, it draws the attention both um, of the public and also of of the scholars, um, of historians um, who probably, first of all, felt the need um, to to bring order in, in, in that chaos of the wartime um, camps and to interpret them. Um, and then, as I said, if you look at the pre-war years um, and you see them in the same line, then they, they must, they can only pale into um, insignificance because nothing can really compare with this um, massive scale um, of destruction. So I think um, it probably takes a while um, until um, you come from other directions. And my direction was more like researching um, social change within German society um, rather than um, um, Nazi Germany's um, genocidal policies um, that opens a new perspective or it opens a new view on um, the pre-war period. Right. Let's get into the chapters a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, the first, the first chapter is called "In the Beginning There Was Violence," <clears throat> and there are two uh, sort of euphemisms that were interesting. Uh, one is protective custody, mm -hmm. and the other is special treatment. Can you tell us what those are and how the use of this, um, you know, seemingly not so terrible propaganda actually disguised what was really going on? Yes. Protective custody is a crucial term. Um, we can define it as indefinite detention without trial. Um, it's an instrument that comes out um, of the declaration of a state of emergency, and it actually precedes the Nazi period. It goes all the way back to the mid-19th century when, in the wake of uh, the failed German Revolution of 1848, um, the state of Prussia for the first time um, uses this instrument of protective custody to arrest people um, for an indefinite period of time to hold them in custody, um, allegedly for their own protection. So as you rightly said, it's a very euphemistic term, really, who is to be protected uh, from whom and for, for whom is this a good uh, thing. But we can clearly see that, that from the beginning, um, it was an instrument um, to dominate um, people and to forego due legal procedures that are actually necessary. Um, so the tradition of protective custody was there in Germany before. But again, um, what the Nazis did in exploiting this pre-existing instrument is taking it um, to an enormous scale. Um, I've talked about the numbers of, of people um, in arrests. So um, tens of thousands, really, were taken into protective custody. 
And it was ushered in um, after the burning of the Berlin Reichstag on the 27th of February 1933, um, when the regime, this very, very new regime, um, not even a month old, um, decided um, to declare the state of emergency, um, seemingly to ward off the threat of a communist um, overthrow. And here we have to go back into the, the last years of the very troubled Weimar Republic, in which there was almost a civil war going on between communists and right-wing um, activists, um, SA uh, stormtroopers, national socialists fighting each other in, in the streets of Berlin and other cities. So this fear of um, the communist overthrow um, was very much there, um, and the Nazis purposely um, abused um, the fears um, of larger circles of the German public, conservative circles, um, to then um, declare the state of emergency and um, make this instrument of protective custody one um, that could help them to arrest large amounts of people um, without trial and for an indefinite period of time. Right. Uh, chapter two looks at some of the day-to-day realities in the early concentration camps. Maybe tell us what is the uh, the Jew company? Right. Um, and I forget to answer your question about the special treatment. Um, so we see that when we look inside the camps, and this is what I do in the second chapter, I shift my perspective um, until in the in the inside area of the concentration camps, and um, we see that the a practice of anti-Jewish violence um, very, very early on um, emerges. And this is something that the perpetrators uh, refer to as the so-called special treatment, which, of course, again, is a euphemistic term for um, treating Jewish prisoners um, in the harshest um, possible way. So um, we see that the Jewish prisoner group, although the number might be rather small, um, assumes a special significance um, within the day-to-day working of the camps. Um, somehow it becomes crucial that Jews are there. They quickly um, turn what I call um, into the outcasts among the outcasts. So they rank at the very bottom of the prisoner hierarchy, um, singled out for degrading, degrading punitive labor, um, for public humiliation, and um, they are segregated into special housing units. And this is something, again, that doesn't happen in a coordinated fashion, but it happens um, in more and more camps um, that the guards, also in order to be able to identify Jewish prisoners, develop all sorts of strategies to mark them externally. Um, and one of the um, convenient things, of course, was to have them all living in the same um, housing unit in the same uh, barrack. Uh, for example, in the Dachau concentration camp, um, this starts uh, right at the beginning. Um, also in the Oranienburg camp close to Berlin, we have a so-called Jew company um, in which Jews are forced together, um, everybody who's declared to be a Jew. And again, sometimes this would not correspond to individual um, self-identification is housed uh, within the Jew company, which then makes them very visible, very exposed to this so-called special treatment of the guards. Right. Most of the um, Jewish prisoners in the early concentration camps were men, mm-hmm. but in chapter in chapter three we see that um, 
there were some interesting differences and also similarities in the experiences of the ten- detention of women. So what can you tell us what's going on in that chapter? Yes, well, you're right in pointing out that camp imprisonment in the main affected uh, Jewish men. Um, we also have a, a small minority um, of Jewish women, um, I think probably not more than 1,000 of the Jewish prisoners of the pre-war time were uh, women. Um, so I decided to devote a whole chapter um, to Jewish women and see um, what were basically um, the differences and the similarities um, between them. Um, I should say that uh, maybe one of the striking differences is that there is no documented case of a Jewish woman who lost her life in the pre-war concentration camps. Um, So this tells you something about uh, treatment, of course. Um, We know of uh, suicide attempts um, of Jewish women in the concentration camps, but there was, um, to the best of our knowledge, um, not a case of death, um, which is very different from um, the much more brutal and lethal uh, treatment of men um, in the camps. Also, we see that the SS, who, um, as I said, assumes control of the concentration camps in the summer of 1934, um, is a bit slower in... Um, taking control of female um, confinement. Until 1937-38, most female prisoners, Jewish and non-Jewish, are held in a place called Moringen um, in Lower Saxony today. Um, And this camp simultaneously functions as a workhouse. So you'll have concentration camp inmates Um, living uh, next to workhouse inmates, and it is under a uh, civilian um, authority, um, a civilian director um, who is not a member of the SS, um, that women um, are kept. And it changes only um, in in 38, really, when a new camp, uh, Lichtenburg, um, is opened for female prisoners, that the SS takes control But um, this issue of uh, separate housing, for example, that I've mentioned uh, for male prisoners um, also um, takes effect for female prisoners. Um, Jewish women are gradually isolated from non-Jewish female prisoners and are housed in a separate unit. So we'll see similarities and differences. Right. How does the uh, how does this renewed look at the pre-war concentration camps change the way we think about the unfolding uh, of the Holocaust? Hmm. Um, I think it sensitizes us maybe in a way um, for discrimination um, starting very early on in the midst of German uh, society. We can probably think about a broader range of perpetrators. I haven't talked about that until now, but what I also discovered is that um, members of the general public, and this might be neighbors, this might be business partners, might even be former friends and lovers, um, are responsible for landing Jews in concentration camp custody. And again, um, the motives for that vary um, from maybe having an economic profit to taking personal revenge and all that sort of um, motives. So I think it can um, enlarge our perception of who was actually responsible for working towards um, what I call the Jewish enemy category 
and for um, taking on these opportunities offered by the Nazi regime, um, maybe to enrich oneself in order um, and, and, and thereby getting rid um, of a Jewish neighbor. Um, yeah. You talked a little bit about, um, you know, not looking backwards, but rather going forward, looking at uh, the social realities of German Jewish history. How did you get interested in this 1933 to 1939 period? Um, yes. Well, um, I started researching uh, the concentration camp while I was working for the Berlin Holocaust Memorial. And for those of you listeners who have visited the memorial, it has an underground um, museum, a little information center, and there is a, there is a room of sites, which is a room that um, exhibits and documents the various localities um, of persecution and uh, destruction of the Jews of Europe. Um, it's about ghettos, transit camps, death camps, uh, sites of mass killings, deportation routes, um, but also about concentration camps. And we worked a lot with uh, photographic images in order to um, represent those uh, sites um, of persecution and destruction. And it struck me that um, when we talk about the pre-war concentration camp, these places were not somewhere far away in the east, um, as so many people uh, would think. But as I said, they were right in the midst um, of German society. So they must have been very visible, um, probably even very audible um, places and this whole um, narrative, of course, of um, we didn't know what was going on uh, in the East, uh, collapses very much uh, when we look at the pre-war period. Um, so I felt that I needed to investigate that that further. And when uh, the research project at the University of London uh, came up that um, decided, and they decided to look specifically at the pre-war years, I was very much drawn to that. Well, Kim, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Um, yes. Um, well, I thought about um, maybe the impact of this topic or how it can, um, how it can change um, the way that we not only perceive history but also perceive our own times. Um, and I think, um, as I said, becoming aware of, of um, what appears to be a harmless-looking period um, in the history um, of the persecution of Jews is actually um, a very violent one, um, can increase our awareness of um, discrimination happening in a society. It's not necessarily a society at war, um, but it's a peacetime society. And the use of police state methods, um, as I said, the declaration of an emergency state and all that can come with it probably help us um, also to see our own times um, more critically. And my new uh, project, if I may say quickly, is um, on the history of enemy aliens in the Second World War, um, focusing on Britain and Nazi Germany. Probably most of your listeners' first association um, is the, the Japanese-American internment in World War II. Um, but there isn't much work done yet on what happens um, in uh, Europe, and I want to investigate the treatment of foreign civilians um, in Britain and in Nazi Germany, compare that. And again, um, many of those categorized enemy aliens in in the UK were, of course, uh, Jewish uh, refugees uh, fleeing um, from Nazi persecution. So I want to look at notions of citizenship, uh, race, uh, national belonging, and hopefully also 
at the history of international law aiming at the humanitarian protection of these uh, civilians. Kim, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so the much. Book is, the book is Before Auschwitz, Jewish Prisoners in the Pre-War Concentration Camps, published this year by Harvard University Press. The author is Kim Wunschmann. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.